First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. William Golding lied to you. He did. He lied to us. It may seem strange to say that a work of fiction is a lie, but just as truth may be conveyed in the guise of fiction, so may falsehood. Golding's 1954 novel, The Lord of the Flies, purveyed a lie. The Lord of the Flies, of which Barb has provided us a brief summary, sold tens of millions of copies. It's been translated into more than 30 languages languages and hailed as one of the classics of the 20th century. Every year, more high schoolers are assigned to read the book. The story is meant to illustrate, as Golding wrote in his letter to his publisher, that even if we start with a clean slate, our nature compels us to make a muck of it. Man produces evil as a bee produces honey. That's the lie. We aren't such a bad species. The book was written for a readership reeling from the atrocities of World War II, asking themselves how Auschwitz could have happened. The idea that there's a Nazi hiding in each of us just waiting for the chance to come out was grim, but at least it seemed to make sense of events that had happened. William Golding was an unhappy man, an alcoholic prone to depression, a man unable to take the trouble to spell acquaintances' names correctly. Biologist and primatologist Franz Duvall says there is not a shred of evidence that this is what children left to their own devices will do. And Franz Duvall had not then heard about the real case of shipwrecked boys on a deserted island. It turns out there is a real such story. And while millions have read William Golding's fable, almost no one knew about the true story until more than 50 years after it happened, when Rutger Bregman, researching his book that came out in Dutch in 2019, dug it up and tracked down the now elderly survivors. In June 1965, Luke, Sion, Fatai, Kolo, Tavita, and Mano, six boys, ages 13 to 16, all pupils at St. Andrews, a strict Anglican boarding school on the South Pacific island of Tonga, were bored. They longed for adventure instead of school assignments. They came up with a plan to escape to Fiji, some 800 kilometers away, or maybe all the way to New Zealand. The boys stole a 7.3-meter boat from a fisherman that they all disliked. They brought two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts, and a small gas burner. And that was pretty much it. No map, no compass. The first night, a bit of weather came up. They hoisted the sail, which the wind properly tore to shreds. And then the rudder broke. For eight days, they drifted without water other than what rainwater they could collect in the coconut shells, which they shared equally, each taking a sip in the morning and another in the evening. And on the eighth day, a miracle. 
They spotted a small island, a hulking mass of rock jutting up more than 300 meters out of the ocean. The boys had stumbled upon Ata, an uninhabited island, 450 acres in size. A New York Times article reported in 2021 that Ata had once been home to about 350 people. But in 1863, British slave traders had kidnapped about 150 of them, and the Tongan king relocated the rest to another island where they would be protected. By the time that our lads from Tonga landed there, the island had been deserted for over a 100 years. Today, it is considered uninhabitable. At first, the boys lived off raw fish, coconuts, and bird's eggs. After about three months, they found the ruins of a village, and their fortunes improved. Amid the rubble, they discovered a machete, domesticated taro plants, a flock of chickens descended from the ones left behind by the previous inhabitants. For 15 months, the boys were on that island, a year and a quarter, before they caught the attention of a passing fishing trawler. The captain that rescued them wrote that by the time we arrived, the boys had set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, a gymnasium with curious weights, a badminton court, chicken pens, and a permanent fire, all from handiwork, an old knife blade, and much determination. Fatai, after countless failed attempts, had managed to produce a spark using two sticks. And while the boys in the make-believe Lord of the Flies come to blows over the fire, those in the real-life Lord of the Flies tended their flame. So it never went out for more, for more than a year they did. The kids agreed to work in teams of two, drawing up a strict roster for garden, kitchen, and guard duty. Sometimes they quarreled, but whenever that happened, they solved it by imposing a timeout. The squabblers would go to opposite ends of the island to cool their tempers, and after four hours or so, Mano later remembered, we'd bring them back together, and we'd say, okay, now apologize. That's how we stayed friends. Their days began and ended with song and prayer. Colo fashioned a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood, half a coconut shell, and six steel wires salvaged from their wrecked boat, and he played it to help lift their spirits. One day, Fatai slipped and fell off a cliff and broke his leg. The other boys picked their way down after him, then helped him back up to the top. They set his leg using sticks and leaves, and the leg healed perfectly. Says Retgar Bregman, the real Lord of the Flies is a story about friendship, cooperation, and human resilience. In the delayed discovery of this story, the New York Times wrote, the six boys flourished in their spontaneous community, suggesting that cooperation, not conflict, is an integral feature of human nature. So William Golding lied to us. Why, then, has his novel seemed to so many to be so realistic? In World War II, German planes dropped, dropped 80,000 bombs on London alone. 
40,000 people in the UK were killed and a million buildings were damaged or destroyed. Germany's war planners were sure that this would break the British will to resist, that there would be a general social collapse. The British famously kept calm and carried on. As the tide of war turned, the Allies, refusing to learn from the British experience, planned a similar civilian bombing campaign against Germany. Then they, too, fell into the delusion that this would break their enemy's will to resist. Terrible idea. Crisis brings out not the worst in people, but the best. Analyses after the war indicated that Allied bombing strengthened the German wartime economy, thereby prolonging the war. Between 1940 and 1944, they found that German tank production had multiplied by a factor of nine and of fighter jets by a factor of 14. The bombs boosted solidarity, and solidarity improved efficiency. Humans are made to pull together and help each other out. The movie Titanic shows people blinded by panic, except for the string quartet, <laughs> but the movie was not accurate about that. In fact, the evacuation was quite orderly. Or take September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks. As the Twin Towers burned, thousands of people descended the stairs calmly, even though they knew their lives were in danger. They stepped aside for firefighters and the injured. Most people, most of the time, are basically decent. Maybe the worst thing about us is what a hard time we have believing that. Why do we have such a hard time believing the truth that we are basically decent, that we care for others and are, when circumstances require, ready to enact caring with considerable courage? So why do we have a hard time believing the truth about how basically sociable and cooperative we are. One factor for why it's hard to, for us to believe in one another's basic virtue is this. The way that we got to be such a cooperative species was by carefully monitoring non-cooperation when it pops up. Cooperative pro-social behavior doesn't grab our attention very much. Our brains are wired to focus on antisocial behavior so that we can bring social forces to bear to bring the offender back in line. It's like our attraction to sugar, which was functional when sugar was scarce and we needed to have a preference for riper fruit. But now that we can mass produce sugar, our sweet tooths are killing us. Focus on antisocial behavior was a brilliant adaptation when it was a rare thing to see antisocial behavior. But now that we have mass media inundating us with stories of people doing bad things, which the media does because people doing normal, ordinary, everyday good things isn't very interesting. It doesn't sell newspapers. It doesn't attract eyeballs or grab the attention of brains that have been wired to attend to misbehavior. Functional, normally cooperative people are boring to watch, which is rule number one for any producer of a reality TV show. Hence, my prayer and blessing for all of you is 
May your life be one that, if it were a reality TV show, would have terrible ratings. We got to be the highly cooperative, hyper-social animals that we are by paying attention to rare, uncooperative actions. But then we developed media that overloads us with stories that we are wired to pay attention to. Thus, we end up with the misimpression that people are usually only out for their own narrow self-interests, that people are no darn good. As Rutger Bregman says, even after researchers presented their subjects with hard data about strangers returning lost wallets or the fact that the majority of the population doesn't cheat or steal, most subjects did not view humanity in a more positive light. In particular, Bregman notes, catastrophes bring out the best in people. I know of no other sociological finding that is backed by so much solid evidence that is so blithely ignored. The picture we are fed by the media is consistently the opposite of what happens when disaster strikes. That's one factor in why William Golding's novel seemed to so many to be realistic. A second factor is this. Power tends to corrupt. Lord Acton was right about that one. We are basically decent, but power does tend to corrupt us. It starts in little ways, mild but telling. In one study, subjects were put in teams of three and given a task to do together. And the researchers would randomly pick one of the three and say, you be the leader, randomly selected. As the team of three went about their task, the researchers brought them a snack. A plate of five cookies. Five cookies for three people. One of the cookies would typically be left on the plate as per etiquette that inhibits taking the last one. That leaves four cookies for three people. They all got one, and then one of them takes a second. What the study found is that it was almost always the person randomly selected as the designated leader who took the second cookie. In another, subjects, in another study, subjects were assigned a car and told to drive it around the block. Some subjects were randomly assigned a beat-up Mitsubishi or a Ford Pinto, while others were assigned to drive a high-end, late-model BMW or Mercedes. As they approached the crosswalk, a pedestrian would step off the curb. All the drivers of the clunker cars stopped and let the pedestrian go by. The drivers of the fancy cars, however, 45% of the time failed to stop for the pedestrian. Psychologist Dr. Keltner calls it acquired sociopathy. Even a tiny bit of power, and we feel like taking that extra cookie. Why are we like that? At heart, we are such team players that we adapt to the role we find ourselves in, even adopting some traits unconsciously. If you're assigned the role of an important person, then you'll act like an important person. And important people don't have time to wait for pedestrians. We're funny that way. We are not such a bad species, but we are funny. People often rise to power by being very friendly, attentive, warm, caring, and helpful. And then they get into power, and it's like brain damage. 
It transpires that people in power display the same tendencies. They literally act like someone with brain damage. Not only are they more impulsive, self-centered, reckless, arrogant, and rude, they become more likely to cheat on their spouses, less attentive to other people, less interested in others' perspectives. They're also more shameless, often failing to manifest the one facial phenomena that makes human beings unique among primates. They don't blush. Neurological brain scans find that a sense of power disrupts what is known as mirroring, a mental process which plays a key role in empathy. Ordinarily, we mirror all the time. Someone else laughs, you laugh too. Someone yawns, so do you. But powerful individuals mirror much less. It's almost as if they no longer feel connected to their fellow human beings, as if they've come unplugged. If we are conscious of this tendency, we can counteract it. Many of us have had experience with that boss who was the exception to this tendency, who remained thoughtful and considerate of others even after ascending to power. So it can be counteracted. When it isn't counteracted, those suffering from acquired sociopathy assume that others are as self-centered and uncooperative as they have become. Having come unplugged, they forget how cooperative and decent most people are. The dynamic during disasters is almost always the same. Adversity strikes, there's a wave of spontaneous cooperation in response, then the authorities panic and unleash a second disaster. Emergency responders don't respond, believing there's too much chaos to go in. Or armed authorities open fire on people, on peaceful people. Rebecca Solnit wrote about the aftermath of the 2005 Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans. She wrote, My own impression is that elite panic comes from powerful people who see all humanity in their own image. And Bregman adds, Dictators and despots, governors and generals, they all too often resort to brute force to prevent scenarios that exist only in their own heads on the assumption that the average Joe is ruled by self-interest just like them. People in power tend to purvey the idea that the Lord of the Flies is realistic. Between our sweet tooth for bad news and the projected acquired sociopathy of the powerful, we are apt to become convinced that we are a terrible species. As filmmaker Richard Curtis observed, if you make a film about a man kidnapping a woman and chaining her to a radiator for five years, something that has happened probably once in history, it's called searingly realistic analysis of society. If I make a film like Love Actually, which is about people falling in love, and there are about a million people falling in love in Britain today, it's called a sentimental presentation of an unrealistic world. Sentimental? I suppose you could say so. But unrealistic? Not at all. So I will leave you then with Hugh Grant's voiceover words at the opening of Curtis's film, Love Actually. When I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. <laughs>
fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Not such a bad species. Amen.